Well, hey everyone, what is up? Welcome or welcome back to my channel. My name is Austin. This is Gospel Simplicity, a place where we're passionate about the beautiful simplicity and transformative power of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Hey, whether you're new or you've been watching for a while and you just haven't already, I'd really encourage you, if you're enjoying these videos, go ahead and hit subscribe to become a part of what we're doing here on the channel. And if you really want to stay in the loop and not miss a future video, be sure to hit the notification bell as well. A huge thanks to all of you that have already done this. It's such a pleasure to get to be a part of this community for myself, and so I hope you guys are enjoying it as well. Well, today I have a really, really fun interview for you guys. It's with Dr. Michael Heiser of the Naked Bible podcast, author of many famous books, including The Unseen Realm and a book on demons, which we'll be talking about today. And look, I know for some of you that just might be like a weird topic, but I'd really encourage you, check this out. If for nothing else, to learn about what was it that the ancient Israelites were thinking about when they thought about the world in the supernatural realm. That that might seem just crazy to you, but it's a cross-cultural experience. And go on this journey with us to see what it is that they were thinking about and what categories they were using and maybe, just maybe, what that might have to do with your life. Well, before we get to that interview, we'll be there in just a second. I have to say a huge thank you to our patron subscribers and merch buyers who make this channel possible, especially to my patrons who give monthly to support this channel Thank you all so much. Because of your generous support, not only is this channel sustainable, but allows it to grow into exciting and new things like the podcast we were able to start or the live streams we were able to do or the church tours or these interviews. So many other things would not be possible without them. So if you would like to become a supporter of this channel, you can go to patreon.com slash gospel simplicity. And that link is also in the description down below. I also want to say a thank you today to our sponsor, Kindred. Kindred is a ministry that exists to help people reclaim sacred time with God in their daily lives. And they do this by creating these beautiful Bibles, complete with full-page photos and the beautiful layout of the text that will force you to read the Bible differently. You'll read more slowly and more contemplatively. It'll be a more prayerful reading, and I think you'll get a lot out of it, and I think you'll really enjoy it. Plus, you'll have a beautiful Bible and everyone likes that. So if you want to check them out, you can go to kindredapostle.com. And if you do so, be sure to use the promo code gospel10 for 10% off your order today. Well, with all that being said, let's go ahead and get to the interview. Well, today I am joined by Dr. Michael Heiser. Dr. Michael Heiser is a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania with a Master's of Arts in Ancient History and the University of Wisconsin-Madison with both a Master's and a PhD in Hebrew Bible and Semitic Studies. He has a dozen years of classroom teaching experience on the college level and another 10 in distance education. He is currently the Executive Director of Awakening School of Theology in Jacksonville, Florida. He's a prolific writer and podcaster. His books include The Unseen Realm, Supernatural, Angels, and the book we'll be discussing today, Demons, as well as several others. He is the host of the popular podcast, The Naked Bible Podcast. Dr. Michael Heiser, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, it is my pleasure. And I wanted to start by asking, how did you get interested in kind of the niche that you're in? I mean, you're in Hebrew Bible and Semitic studies in general, but I will say I don't know many other scholars in that field that have uh, frequently asked questions on their website that includes, do you believe in aliens? And so you right. you researched some interesting <laughs> things. How did you kind of get interested in these things and the supernatural worldview of ancient Israel? Yeah, I, I could make that stranger if I ever updated the FAQ. <laughs> oh, well, I, I, I like to, to say that I've always been interested in anything old and weird. Um, 
which is true. You know, I, I didn't grow up in any kind of Christian context. I mean, I became a, a Christian when I was in high school. And, you know, the, the Bible was just sort of a sweet spot. You know, it was old, and there's lots of weird stuff in it. So, you know, I, I was fortunate, too, to have my initial church context was one that took Scripture pretty seriously. So, you know, we, we got a lot of content uh, as high schoolers and then on into, into college and whatnot. And I just, you know, the, the early interest that I had in ancient studies, again, anything old and strange. And, you know, I, I was the, they didn't have ancient aliens then, thank, thank God. But, uh, you know, it was in search of with Leonard Nimoy. You know, I'm, I'm the kid that's watching that all the time, you know, and, and all these sorts of specials. And when I, when I got interested in scripture, when I you know, became a believer and actually started reading scripture, it was like, it was just the perfect match. Uh, you know, I, I liked all of it. You know, I, I eventually sort of settled on or sort of got funneled uh, into Old Testament and Semitics because I liked languages. I liked dead languages. Um, so I was I was good at that. So I could have done, you know, New Testament as well. But I things like Hebrew and Egyptian and, you know, Ugaritic and Aramaic, they just seemed a little cooler. <laughs> You know, than than, than Greek. Um, so I, that was one thing that sort of pulled me, and I I liked the idea of having you know to to learn these things and being able to do translation work. But I also felt that for the believer, the Old Testament was the place where there were more problems. So I I that's really what led me to land there. It's like I I felt like I could be of the most use, you know, if I went this route as opposed to some other route. As far as, you know, supernatural beings, though, I had no interest in that other than just the, the general generic weird stuff. Like, well, that, that, that's weird, but, I, like, I never had the thought that, well, I'm going to make this my academic specialty. You know, that, that never occurred to me until uh, the episode that I write about in uh, Unseen Realm. You know, that, that was provoked uh, by Providence that, you know, directed directed my path at that point, but uh, this is this is not an exaggeration. This is absolutely true. What I'm going to say next that I went through three years of Bible college, two more years of Christian undergrad and biblical studies, two or three years in seminary, um, and I had two master's degrees. I won't count the university stuff. We'll just count the Christian Bible college and seminary stuff. I had one clock hour, not credit hour, clock hour, 60 minutes of instruction on angels and demons. Wow. In other words, nobody cared. Nobody was interested in it. And so you, when that happens to you, you, you get the impression, unfortunately and falsely, that this can't be very important. So, you know, maybe if I was a Catholic and a priest, you know, I'd talk about exorcisms, you know. But but here here in the evangelical Protestant world, nobody gives a rip, you know, about this. So that was that was it. You know, I, I never gave it a second thought again until somebody essentially forced me to read Psalm 82 in Hebrew and the rest is sort of history. Um, and that that provocation led to me having to find an answer for Psalm 82 
which led to it becoming a focal point of my dissertation, which led me down all sorts of other paths. You know, Judaism's two powers in heaven, like, oh, wow, they really used to teach that there was a Godhead. And Judaism used to teach that? Yep. You know, things like the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. You know, where does Daniel get his theology? You know, we're all familiar with Daniel's Prince of Persia, Prince of Greece. Oh, that's cool. Supernatural beings that have impact and influence over geopolitical empires. Ooh, that's neat. But nobody ever asks where Daniel gets it. <laughs> like, it's such an obvious question now. But I never thought to ask it. Like, it just popped into his head. Or it was just a throwaway line. Remember... That's about three minutes of my 60, you know, my 60-minute my exposure, you know, to anything in the supernatural world. So when, when you start to, to see these things, it, it provoked, you know, a watershed sort of moment for me that I had to come to grips with, am I going to read the Bible the way an ancient person, you know, read it? And these are the people God picked to write it. They had a worldview than I do, and they were predisposed to embrace the reality of a supernatural world where I was a product of the Enlightenment. Am I going to essentially take the red pill here, you know, and, and pursue this and, and, and try to read Scripture like they did and begin to acknowledge these things are in the text, or am I just going to go on my merry way and, you know, do what I've been doing, you know, up to that? I was a, I was a doctoral student. You know, why do I want to reinvent the wheel during my PhD? I mean, that, that just sounded crazy, but I couldn't let it go. And so it, it has now become just, again, the touch point for basically everything. And, and people, you know, they, they'll read the books, they'll listen to the podcast, they'll listen to interviews like this where we get into stuff that we think we know about the spiritual world. The Bible either doesn't say it or it's, it's completely misunderstood or you're told not to see it. You know, as, and then you get into the stuff that's actually there, and it blows people's minds. And, and I have to look at them and just say, "Look, I'm not doing anything magical here. There's no secret sauce. You know, it, it's just sometimes the text actually means what it says. You know, and, and you don't need to to explain it away because it's not palatable to somebody who thinks like a modern. You know, sometimes just just that much honesty is all that's needed." to make sense of this thing, you know, called the Bible. It, it's supposed to make sense, but it, you know, it, 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 all the dots will connect if you read it the way, you know, from the perspective of the writers. These are the people God picked when they're writing to people who live at the same time. They're not yeah. us. Okay, they're, they're just not us. So if you're willing to do that, yeah, it'll, it'll start to have its own coherence and logic and, and and the data points will start to line up and connect and, and you'll start to build the matrix and the mosaic and whatever metaphor is useful here. And, and, and I can do that for you, but it, it you know, it, it's a simple adjustment, but it, it's, it's very profound in its implications. And so now what, I'm one of these people, again, it, since I've seen it now for 15, 20 years, almost 20 years, I can't unsee it. You know, yeah. I, they're not just random data points anymore. I, I, I can see how things connect, you know, all over the place in Scripture and, and the intelligence behind it. And a lot of that is deeply involved with supernatural beings in a supernatural world. Um, 
you know, so that, that's how I sort of got sucked into the vortex, you know, and, and this has sort of defined me now. And I'm, I'm happily unrepentant, you know, that I, that I took the red pill because it, it opened to me as a doctoral student all over again, you know, it, it, which is a wonderful experience. Uh, a lot, a lot of people in the Christian world have a lot of data points and they have a good bit of Bible under the belt, but they have no framework for it. They, they have no place, no means by which to connect the dots. You know, they filter it through creeds and traditions and whatnot, and those things aren't bad, but but they're not, they're not the worldview of the writer, and they're, and they're not a replacement for scripture. They're they're a, they're a distillation of a small list of points you know, that you get, you know, from scripture. So if you really, if you have the nagging sense that there must be more to the Bible than, you know, the points in the Westminster Confession or Jesus is your cosmic life coach or something like that, well, your, your intuition is correct. There, there's a lot more to it. But you're never going to get there unless you, again, are willing to, to put all of that aside and try to read it with the predisposition of an ancient person and also try to get, I'll use an academic term here, try to, to get that ancient person's cognitive environment into your head. Because once you do that, you will see things from a completely different perspective. And it'll lead, you know, your, your theology isn't going to, you know, fundamentally change. Or like, you know, we, we thought the gospel was A and now it's B. And, you know, it's nothing like that. It's just there, there's, a, there's a fullness and a richness to it and a logic to it that enables you to understand the, the breadth of Scripture, not, not just a few passages, that, that helps make sense of the whole thing. And you can see how the, how the parts contribute you know, to the major point of the story, which is you know, salvation history and Jesus and whatnot. But it's all there for a reason, and it makes sense on its own terms. And so if you really want to know it and, and really understand why your doctrine is what it is, where it comes from, how it's framed you know, before we, we ever meet Jesus. Well, then, then you need to do this. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for that. And I think, I mean, clearly you, you mentioned, you know, you only had an hour of this experience in your undergrad and it gives you this, or not just your undergrad, including graduate work, gives you the yeah. sense that's not that important, but clearly it's resonating with tons of people. Your work has been immensely popular. And I think people listening to all of that are going to be thinking, if they're not familiar with what you've done, like, okay, like let, let's see this in action. And so I'm excited to kind of dive into it mm -hmm. a little bit and show them some of these connections, specifically on this topic of demons, which we'll be talking about, which again, you wrote a book on with Lexum Press. And you mentioned just from the beginning of the book, you kind of put your cards on the table and you say that you think that we largely have pretty serious misunderstandings of what the Bible actually teaches about mm -hmm. demons. And one of the sources you point to for this is church tradition. Mm -hmm. Now, my audience is very diverse, and some of them come from Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant backgrounds. It's kind of mm -hmm. across the spectrum, and they'll have different relationships to church tradition. But sure. I'd be curious just what you would say to people listening that might be wary, like, how did the church get this wrong? Or like, how, how can we... What, what makes us think that the church went off the rails and perhaps mm -hmm. where did they go off the rails here? Well, hey, everyone, we will get right back to the interview. But first, I wanted to thank another sponsor today, and that is Faithful Counseling. I am so excited to be partnering with Faithful Counseling. They are an organization that exists to help you get the help that you need. You know, one of the first YouTube videos I ever made was titled, You Can Have Jesus and a Therapist Too. 
Today, so many people are struggling with their mental health, and the last thing we need to do is create a stigma around it that keeps people from getting the help they need. And I want to do my part to help you all reach out and find the resources that can be helpful for you. And I think Faithful Counseling could be one of those things. Faithful Counseling is a group of Christian counselors. And no matter where you are in the Christian tradition, they have counselors from across uh, the spectrum of denominations. And if that's important to you, they can try to link you up with someone uh, that matches your background. But their counselors, they are all licensed counselors with over 3,000 hours of experience. You can connect with them from any country in the world, and you can connect with them in four different ways. You can do video sessions, phone calls, live chat, and messaging. These are people that are here to help you, and I really think that you could benefit from them. If you are struggling, you do not need to be doing this alone, and I really encourage you to check them out. You can do so by going to faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity. If you do that, if you go to faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity, not only will you get 10% off your first month, but you can be matched with a counselor in less than 24 hours, which is absolutely incredible. You'll be getting counseling from a Christian perspective, and you'll be on the path to doing the work and getting the help that you need. So I'd really encourage you to check them out, faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity. Also, I want to let you know that this is not a crisis line. If you are currently experiencing suicidal thoughts or ideation, please reach out to a crisis line. You can find one at www.crisistextline.org. You do not want to go through this alone, and please reach out if you are experiencing those things. Well, once again, I hope that if this is something that would be helpful for you, that you will check that out. You can find the link in my description. I want to do my part, as I said, to end the stigma. I hope that you will as well. Let's help people get the help they need to be on the path towards healing and hope. So go to faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity. Yeah, I mean, and it's not that the church tradition gets everything wrong. It, it doesn't. But when it comes to demonology, a lot of, they're sort of playing without a net. And what, and what I mean by that is they, your, your first couple of generations, people like Irenaeus, you know, the patristic fathers, Tertullian, Justin Martyr, these guys were, were closer to, you know, the first century, obviously, than you know, even even somebody like Augustine, you know, two three hundred years later, they had a, a sense for the, the contexts of a lot of things that, that go on in the New Testament, and they had they were they were more. I think um, it's fair to say they were more exposed to the literature of what we call Second Temple Period Judaism, intertestamental period Judaism which is basically the serious Jewish community that considers the Hebrew Bible the Word of God, they're, they're doing theology with the Hebrew Bible. They're trying to connect the dots, just like we do. I mean, they look at their Old Testament, look at all this stuff, what does it mean, how does it go together? That's what they're trying to do. But, you know, the, the writers in the first century who were you know, producing the New Testament, they were familiar with a lot of that material. And very few Christians that emerge you know, in the next couple centuries were. But just a handful so once you start to lose your connection to the primary contexts, and once you're unable to, to read primary, really count the number of church fathers who could read Hebrew on one hand. I mean, they, they're, they're either Greek or Latin. You know, Augustine was a Latinist. He could, he could handle Greek, but he confessed to hating it. You know, 
you couldn't do anything in Hebrew. You know, this once you start losing the, the language facility and you're further removed from the context, which means you're further removed from the discussion about again your Old Testament in its own context, you're 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 kind of freewheeling points. <laughs> you know, you're 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 guessing, you know, at, at certain things. Or you're you're coming up with interpretation and answers for certain passages, and this isn't a bad thing, but that serve the purposes at hand. I mean, church tradition is largely formed because of, of the material that, that you know, Christian thinkers and important you know, scholars and pastoral figures, what they write, and what they write is, is largely in response to issues they have to address in their own day. You know, they, there's a lot of pressure you know, theologically to hammer this or that point out. There's a lot of other opinions, so they have they enter into debates and they have discussions. So they're what they're trying to do theologically is a little bit different, you know, than what we might do or, or somebody else before them might have done. Um, and, and so they, they they go off on these trajectories and they 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 reach points that help them win a debate in one area, and then they become dogma. Okay, and, and so you can't depart from this now. Now you you, know, you got to you got to use what you have here, and so they start to build the theological picture in this manner. And again, it's not like everything they say is wrong. I mean, they get they get lots of stuff right on the head. You know, they they, they do a good job, but when it comes to you know certain things that really require a careful analysis of the Hebrew text, because this this all starts in the Old Testament, which has the ancient Near East as its own context. When when you start losing the ability to interact with that material, well, you're you're going to make mistakes. You're going to you're going to have problems. You're going to come up with positions that, that really don't fit. You know, they they might look like they fit here in this one passage, but what about the four other passages that dip into that one? You know, how do what do we do now? So it it, it creates gaps and it creates holes in the theological picture. And, and so that, that's, that's what I'm sort of alerting people to. That if, if you want to, you know, if you want to construct a biblical theology, by definition, you don't do that from church tradition. You do that from exegesis of the biblical texts understood in context. And so sometimes the church fathers are able to do that really efficiently, other times not so much. And there, there are you know, in this one, let me just give you, your audience an example. It's very common. I, I don't know about what, what Eastern Orthodoxy's uh, position on this is, but Catholic and Protestant, you know, two-thirds of the rest, you know, will we'll teach something like, where do demons come from? Oh, the, the, the demons, you know, we get demons from fallen angels that rebelled or fell with Satan sometime prior to the temptation of Adam and Eve, I, you know, sometime prior to, to what we know as the fall. And that's taught as doctrine. There isn't a single verse in the Bible that says that. There's, there isn't a single story that sketches that out. Zero. Okay, you know, the, and, and you know, this third of the angels thing, there, there's no passage that even describes the angels in thirds until you get to Revelation 12, where there's a war in heaven over the birth of the Messiah. Okay, well, that has nothing to do with pre-fall stuff. I mean, this is a good example of something that's taught as doctrine that can't be found in Scripture. Now, if you ask the Second Temple Jew, where did demons come from? Oh, they had an answer for that. 
And they had an answer that, that to, to Christians would, would sound completely bizarre. But it's all over intertestamental writing. And the data points for it can be found in the Old Testament. And their answer was demons are the disembodied spirits of dead Nephilim, dead giant clans that extend from Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And that, that tells you right away they're taking the sons of God as supernatural beings. This is a supernatural transgression. I mean, this is this is a unified. There are very few things in, in ancient biblical material where everybody has the same view. This is one of them. I mean, Second Temple Judaism, this is where demons come from, period. You know, and, and the church today doesn't teach anything like this. And, and it, it isn't hard to demonstrate which one of the two views has its roots in the Old Testament. <laughs> okay, that's that's easy. And I, and I do that in, you know, in the book. But this is, these are sort of illustrative points of, of how there's this disconnect between, you know, established Christian theology and what you'll actually find, you know, in, in contemporary and primary source texts uh, that, that go all the way back in the Old Testament and even earlier in, in some cases. Wow. Well, thank you for that. I think that's that's a really helpful example that you give there. And if people want to dive into that more, I definitely recommend uh, to check out your book on that and I'll recommend that throughout. But I, I want to anticipate one uh, maybe comment that people might have in mind specifically from uh, maybe Catholic Orthodox traditions when you mention the Church Fathers and the Hebrew Bible. Now, it's true. Very few of them could read Hebrew. But they could read Greek, and the Septuagint mm -hmm. was around. And you address this a little bit in your book, maybe not in the exact context. But how does the transition from the Hebrew Bible to the Septuagint kind of uh, resulted in a loss of some of these things or a lack of clarity? Yeah. Now, that, that could be a long conversation, but is there, is there something you could point to just if people are like, well, yeah, but they could read it in yeah. Greek and wasn't that good enough? Yeah, that, it's, this is an important part of the discussion, actually. In the first chapter of the Demons book, I, I go into the terminology for supernatural beings in the Old Testament. And there's a lot of variety, okay? And I talk about, okay, there's three buckets here. You know, one is you get terms that describe what a supernatural being is, you know, ontologically. This, these, this is terms like Rukot, spirits. Elohim is actually one of these terms. Um you know, it, it tells you what a thing is. And then the second bucket is it tells you where, where that thing ranks, because there's rank and hierarchy. Sons of God is actually a hierarchical term drawn from the royal court of the ancient Near East. And then the third bucket is job descriptions, what these what supernatural beings do, what their role is. And, and angel is actually one of these. It's a messenger. That's all it means, both in Hebrew and Greek. So you, you've got a, a wide range of terminology. And what happens is the Old Testament does get translated into Greek. And the Greek translators, <clears throat> in many cases, not all, because it, the Septuagint was like any other good translation. It's a committee translation. So it's more than one hand. So you're going to have guys that try to strike very word, word for word, you know, literal equivalents and preserved a lot of the nuancing of Old Testament terminology. But then you get other guys, it's like, oh, it's a supernatural being? We'll call that a, a daimon. Okay, because daimon, again, in between the, the Testaments, wasn't necessarily, and, and you know, in earlier Greek, we get our word demon from it, but 
originally it was a neutral term. A daimon was just any supernatural being. It could be a god, it could be a ghost, it could be, you know, some low, high-ranking, good, bad. It didn't matter. It was it was the generic term. Like like we would look at, you know, the population of the world and say human. Well, okay, well that that's right, but gosh, there's a lot of nuancing that we really need, you know, beyond that. So they they would they they opted for daimon. And so you get things called demons, you know, in, in an English translation of the are called demons in Hebrew. So you, you got a, you got a significant not only a disconnect but, but kind of a, a meaning or vocabulary change where where all this nuance sort of gets funneled into and then eventually the daimon become the bad guys. And then the, the angels become the good guys. So we actually get all this vocabulary responsive funneled into two terms. And then the New Testament inherits a lot of that. But there, you know, the, the Septuagint is, is uneven. I mean, I can, you can, Septuagint of Psalm 82, for instance, it says sons of God. It doesn't say daimon or daimonion or, or angeloi. It says sons of God. And there's a lot of these things. So in, in, the, in the second chapter of the book, I go through and show you know, how this funneling occurred and, and where the outliers are and this sort of thing. But but the church inherits that for exactly the reason that you said, that the church widely could read Greek. And so that's what they went with. But their their theology then is based on an, a translation that may or may not be a, a really precise render and that affects, again, the way they articulate and expound and, and then solidify or codify tradition as well. So you, you actually have two sources for where uh, Christian theology comes out that, that largely exclude, <laughs> it's going to sound bizarre, but that largely exclude the Hebrew Bible in doing so. You know, three quarters of our Bible is, is this thing, you know, you know, is the Hebrew Bible. So it, it, you know, some of it is just a, a factor of translation. There's nothing sinister going on here. There's no conspiracy or agenda. It's just this is the way things happen. You know, it's it's boots on the ground. This is just how things are. Uh, and so if if you want to again a more precise understanding, like if you brought an Old Testament Israelite into the first century and started talking about, you know, Dever and Ketev, you know, from Psalm 91. To, to that Israelite, th these are these are foreign gods. These, these are gods that come from the dispersion at Babel. To the first century guy, they're de demons. What do you mean they're demons? You know, what's that? You know, we don't even have a word for demon in Hebrew. That that equates to what you think of it, like the demon in the Gospels. There are two. If if people you know look up in the concordance, they're going to find in English translations the word demon two times in the Old Testament. It's a translation of shadim which, as I discuss, is actually a, a territorial entity term. And it makes wonderful sense in Deuteronomy 32, 17, because, again, these are the fallen gods of, of the Deuteronomy 32 worldview, the Babel you know, disruption, the battle, Babel rebellion, that where, where the sons of God are put over the nations and then they become corrupt. And adversaries to Yahweh, this is the old, where the Old Testament explains why the other nations have pantheons, where they get their gods. It's a result of a judgment at, at, at Babel. Again, we're not taught any of this, but the, the Israelite knows this stuff. You know, but if, the, if he'd have a conversation with a first century person, it's like, I don't quite know what you're talking about. What, that term, what do you mean by it? Like, what is that? 
they, they wouldn't really quite know how to do, you know, what to do with it. And if the Old Testament guy starts talking about other gods, you know, chances are the, the later Christian would think, what do you mean other gods? Like, where are you getting that vocabulary? You know, they, they would end up talking past each other because of, again, the, the translation issue and then how that works its way and gets codified in tradition. Yeah. You know, I think for people out there who maybe this is the first time they're coming across all of this and granted their mind's probably blown it's at this probably, point. Thinking, probably <laughs> but but I, what, what I want them to hear that you've mentioned several times is this is all about reading the text in its context. And I think as Christians yeah. of, of various stripes, we're, we all, we're all for that and we, we might do it differently and we might, you know, emphasize different things, but Until part of reading the text, <laughs> yeah, but part of reading the text in context yeah. is reading it in light of the ancient worldview. How would this original audience have re read this and received this? And I, I get the sense of that being kind of at the core of what you're doing. So I just want to say, you know, for those that are maybe saying this, this sounds a little strange that that's what we're working at. And I think that's a common right. goal that we yeah. can work to, even if you're a little scandalized and, and, at this and, point. And you know why it sounds strange? Because the biblical writers weren't you. Yeah. And you're not them. Okay. They're, 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 the way they think about the world is dramatically different than the way a post-enlightenment, you know, Catholic or evangelical or charismatic or non-charismatic, anything post-biblical, okay? That's, that's a different cognitive environment especially in, in modernity, than, than they had. Just outside the, the demonic world, how many times have you read through you know, the, the, the Pentateuch, okay, Leviticus? I mean, and I'll assume people actually read Leviticus instead of just skipping it, okay? But you get all these weird laws, you know? Like, like what's up with, why, why is you know, a, a couple who, after they have sex, they're, they're unclean? Why is it a woman is unclean after she has a child? You know, like this concept of uncleanness. And, you, and if, you, if you read in these laws, uncleanness is associated with the loss of blood and the loss of, you know, semen, okay, for the male. Well, what, what, isn't that, I mean, what, what's wrong with it? Are you saying that's a sin or something? No. The idea was that blood and semen, this is, these are life forces, this is where life comes from. Again, this is an ancient person that this, you know, they know what they know by experience. Okay, if you if you go out to battle and you get your arm cut off or something and you bleed enough, you're going to die. So if you lose enough of that red stuff, you're dead. So that must have something to do with the fact that you're a living being. Okay, so they know that much. They know where babies come from. Okay, and so the idea was that the life. Where do you get the life force? You get it from the life giver. That would be God. And so if you, if you lose the life force, then that must mean that you're, you're sort of going down the trajectory toward death. Okay? Now, we don't like that. That's bad. We want to we be whole and complete. We want to conform to the order that God created and, and be full of the life force that he gave. And so we're not fit anymore to be in his presence in sacred space. We haven't done anything morally wrong, but we're not whole. And so we need to wait a certain number of days and do, do a certain procedure because the procedure will teach you about the difference between you and God, between the space where you live and he lives. It's, it's designed to teach, these, to teach these concepts that reflect 
a certain way of looking at, at the world and our place in it and God's place in it and, and reinforce these ideas. The whole system has its own internal logic that would never occur to us because we're, you know, again, we're, we're from the modern world of science, okay? We're, we're technological, we're science-driven. We don't think about the world in these terms. And so when we go to read these texts, we just think they're totally bizarre and totally random. There's nothing to learn here. Well, actually, there's a lot to learn here, conceptually, theologically. If you can track with, with their thought patterns and their thought processes, there's a lot to learn here. Um, they, can, they can teach us some really good things, some very you know, sound concepts in our relationship with God. But we never, we never really quite know what questions to ask, or, or even in some cases it's sad to say we never even bother asking why would they think that way. They're just, they're weird. Or, or, or we just, you know, we say things like, well, well, it must be about Jesus. We'll find Jesus somewhere in this verse, and then we don't have to think about it anymore. You know, that's just laziness. Okay, there is, it's there for a reason. It does contribute something to the fuller you know, theological picture. But it takes work to try to think like they did. And we're fortunate, and I was especially fortunate being at Logos for so many years, that we live at a time now where there's so much data that is accessible to us. The problem isn't that we don't have enough data to, to learn how to think like an Israelite or think like, you know, a first century Jew. The problem is there's so much of it. You know, how do you wade through all this to, you know, to, to be able to do it in, in the time that you have? You know, we, we have so much material that can help us think like the biblical writers did and therefore be able to understand what they were trying to communicate and how it communicates to the things that are more obvious, okay, you know, the, the core items of the faith, how the whole thing is, has a design to it, it makes sense, that uh, we, we can do this. It's just, you gotta, you gotta sort of take the leap. You, you gotta have to see the value uh, in, in uh, being able to read scripture on its own terms, in its own context. And there's a lot of payoff to it in, in any number of ways, ethics, theology, just principles for life. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things like that. Yeah. And I think what this will do as well is, like, and you mentioned this in your own story, it will kind of bring Bible reading to life in a new way as you mm -hmm. begin to investigate these things that you thought you knew, or maybe, like, let's be honest, with Leviticus, like you said, we're gonna, you made the assumption people read it. That might be a bold assumption for a lot of people, but maybe now when they're equipped with this way of thinking of this, you know, I got mm -hmm. this uh, from Tim Mackey, who I'm sure he got it from someone else. Uh, but talking about, you yeah. know, it's a cross-cultural experience. And, and we have a category yeah. for that, at least today. And so if we think of the Bible like that, which is not only cross-cultural, but cross-temporal in like 2,000 yeah. years, then we can begin to say, hey, let's read this on their terms. And then it begins to show us new things. And I think that's going to be exciting for people. And one thing that I think um, might yeah. be really interesting for people from your book on demons is you talk a little bit about satan in the book or some prefer the satan which maybe you can talk about a little bit mm -hmm. but this is another area you mentioned demons and the fall as one thing that's a common misconception but when you talk about satan in the book i imagine it's another thing that a lot of people might go whoa that is not what i had in mind when i mm -hmm. think of what does the bible teach about this figure could you speak a little bit to that yeah 
And, and let me preface it by saying that, that this is actually an important question because, you know, I've, I've actually, I've actually run into people that, you know, Christians that, you know, they, they went off to college and they have to take a, a religion as lit class or something, or they're in a philosophy class. And this is actually one of the things that I've, I have had people relay to me that their professors almost couldn't wait to tell them just so that they could undermine and destroy their faith. <laughs> okay. and, and, and it goes like this. So, you know, we're, we're taught to think a certain way about Satan, capital S, Satan. And when we get to, to passages like Job, the first two chapters of Job, Job 1 and 2 and Zechariah 3 is another one where we, we have capital S, Satan, and he comes to a meeting and the sons of God, and he gets into this tit-for-tat with God, and Job has to suffer because of it and all that. Well, you, th those professors love to point out that, you know what? Have you ever noticed, you know, those of you out there in my classroom that, that read this silly thing called the Bible, have you ever noticed that when you read the story of the serpent in Genesis 3, He's never called Satan, is he? No, he's not. You can go check that, okay? Well, and then you think that, that the guy from Genesis 3, the serpent, now is in Job 1 and 2. You think, that's, you think those are the, two, the same two dudes, but they're not. And you say, well, how do you know? And then he'll, he'll start whipping Hebrew at you. He'll say, and this is all true. You know, Hebrew is like English. It does not tolerate a definite article, the word the, before a proper personal name. Now, I'm not the Mike. It just sounds ridiculous. Okay, We don't do that in English, and neither does Hebrew. So if you have ha, which is the Hebrew definite article, in front of Satan, that tells you by definition it's not capital S Satan. It's not a proper personal name. And guess what? Every time Satan in, occurs in Job 1 and 2 and Zechariah 3, it has the article. And your professor can show you that. He can run a search, you know, because now he, he's, man, I got you in the crosshairs now. I'm going to destroy your faith here. What have we got, five minutes left, you know? So, and, and all of that is correct. We have Hasatan everywhere. It's not a proper personal name. This isn't the devil of Genesis 3. And in fact, He's not even called devil there either. It's the serpent, and he's never called Satan. He's never called the devil. So what are you going to do with that? Your, you know, your, your church, your Sunday school teachers, your parents, they didn't tell you any of this. They didn't want you to know. You know they'll, they'll, they'll use this to undermine you know, people's confidence. So I, I spent a good deal of time talking about this. It, it, it's actually kind of a, it's a common but dumb trajectory. Let me be so bold as to call it dumb, all right? What, it, what it's asking you to believe is that your theology and the Bible's theology about an original rebel in Eden depends on which terms we call that rebel. Why? Why, why does it? Who cares if we have the story? Okay, there's, there's a serpent there. Serpents don't talk. Snakes don't talk. Everywhere else in the ancient Near East, Egypt, Mesopotamia, when animals talk, what do the readers know? Well, the gods must be up to something because animals don't talk. Well, the Israelites aren't the, you know, the, the, the ancient idiots of the world. Okay, they know the same thing. So they know that, that there's something supernatural going on in here and it ain't good. 
because this character, this serpent, whether it, they, the supernatural being comes in the form of a serpent or however it works, is trying to get them to disobey God. That's not good. Okay, so we have we have a supernatural conflict that's going to lead to an earthly rebellion. We, you know, the, the supernatural being is obviously not doing what God wants. He's opposing what God's will is for these two humans, and you got a mess real early. But you have a rebellion. Well, who cares if in Genesis three the rebel is called Satan? He might get called Satan later, and that's in fact what happens as. In the intertestamental period, as, as, again, Jewish writers are thinking about, what do we do with this material? You know, how do we understand it? They begin to come up with all sorts of names for the original rebel. They don't like it. So they call him lots of stuff. Satan is one. Mastama is another. Belial, the worthless one, is another. Diabolos, okay, that's where you get devil in Greek. All of these terms fit. The devil is, is the, the liar, you know. The slanderer. They they come up with lots of terminology that reflect the character of this rebel. If the shoe fits, wear it. Now that doesn't answer the question of well, what what's the satan in, in Job one and two? Okay, when when it comes to that, what you have is you don't have a proper personal name. You have a title. You have a role. It's a role term. It means the adversary, the challenger the inspector, the prosecutor, you know, things like this. And, and you can actually see, look at the conversation. He, he shows up for the meeting. God says, hey, where have you been? And, the, and the, the Satan says, well, I'm running to and fro throughout the whole earth. You know, And this is actually one of, one of, one of the, the tasks of certain members of the heavenly host. It's actually tied into what we call the, the heavenly books motif in, in Scripture. Book of Life is the one we know, but there's like five or six other books, heavenly books. You know, And the lesson to be drawn is not that God is a bad memory or he has Alzheimer's or something. The lesson to be gained is that nothing is ever overlooked. Nothing. It's all taken down. It's all recorded. It's all going to be brought back at some point. That's what you're supposed to learn from it. And so God says, where have you been? And he, even if he, the, Satan, you know, the Satan tells him, and, and God says, okay, have you, have you checked out Job? That dude's awesome. I love, I love that guy. You know, he's righteous. He's blameless. And, and here's where the lines crossed. The, the reporter, the, the prosecutor, the inspector, you know, the snitch says to God, yeah, yeah, I, I've seen him. But you know what? If you took away everything he had and you hurt him, he would curse you to your face. Aha. Now we have a problem because God has a choice to make. God could just look at him. I don't know if any of your audience has ever seen Time Bandits, but this is always the thing that pops into my head where the evil one of the movie, you know, one of his henchmen gets uppity and he looks at him and he says, don't ever talk to me like that again and blows him to bits, you know. Well, you know, God can do that. God can just destroy the, the Satan. But you know what happens if he does that? The question is left unanswered. What question? Is God correct about Job? Is God telling us the truth? Is God wrong? See, the, the question prompts an uncertainty about God's omniscience and his integrity. And so God doesn't blow in the bits. He says, okay, here's what we're going to do. You can do anything you want to Job 
except for killing you. And the reason that that condition's there is so that you can't come back later and say, oh, well, he'd have broken. He'd have broken down. I'd have been right if he'd have just let me do this, but he died. Okay? No. no. You can do anything you want. Anything you want. And we'll see who's right. And now Job doesn't know any of this. You know, the reader, we know the whole backs. We know why Job is suffering. Job doesn't know why he's suffering, because he is righteous. You know, and, and the whole book is about, again, sometimes there's, there's supernatural conflict that leads to human suffering. And we don't really know what the context is. But there's, there's a reality there and a reality on earth. They intersect. This is, the, this is what I do in Unseen Realm. I show from Genesis to Revelation how, how both, both sides, the unseen world and our world, intersect intentionally in God's whole plan, what God wants, how it's ruined, how God gets it back, the whole thing. And, and so this is what Job is really about. You know, one of, one of God's supernatural employees gets up at it and must be dealt with. But unfortunately, it's at Job's expense. But that figure is not the devil of Genesis 3. He's not, he's not great. Like he, you know, he, he's not the guy you, you want babysitting your kids, okay? But <laughs> he's not this guy. And, and so, you know, the, the, the people who know Hebrew, they, they know this because we don't have the definite article before a proper personal name. And so Jews who want to upset Christians will often bring this up. And you guys, you know, you're, you know, this is three quarters of your Bible. You don't even understand it. Your Christian guys are making up your doctrine. And these church father guys didn't know what they were doing. They're just making stuff up and, you know, all that stuff. But maybe they made stuff up about Jesus and they didn't tell you that either. You know, this becomes fodder to, to undermine you know, Christians and their faith. And it's totally unnecessary. You know, you, if, if the shoe fits, if the vocabulary fits later, good, good. You don't need to rewrite the Bible for that. It's just a new term that applies to this rebel back in Genesis 3. And we understand what's going on in Job, you know, 1 and 2. There's no conflict here. They're two different things. So big deal, you know. It, but again, the average undergrad in, in a philosophy classroom, they're not able to do that. They're not able to, because they haven't read the primary text and whatnot. So I, I get into this stuff like this, you know, in the book as well, because when when the church doesn't interpret passages like Job 1 and 2 in their contexts, they do make believers vulnerable to attack and criticism like this that is completely unnecessary and, and completely incoherent, but it's still effective because they don't really have a defense against it. Yeah, I'm glad you were able to show, because I can imagine for some people being like, what's the big deal? But then seeing like this, this can be a, a real thing for people. One, I mean, it's the Bible, so it matters what we it's, believe about it's a lot it. Dumber. It's a lot dumber in pop culture today. I mean, you know, now you, you get stuff like, you know, ancient aliens in its 16th season or whatever, you know, just, you know, trying to, to say things like, you know, the, the plurals in Genesis 1, let us create humankind in our image. Well, those are really aliens because we've got this Sumerian text over here that has the Anunnaki creating humans, even though it doesn't. That, that text actually doesn't exist. The Anunnaki are onlookers. They never participate in creation. But, of course, they're not going to tell you that on the show. 
they're going to try to to say we, we have proof of ancient aliens and oh this is what the bible really talks about you you just you know the church never tells you this it just gets goofy but but because people aren't acquainted with their own scriptures and they're not acquainted with again the world in which those scriptures operate you know, Mesopotamian material they're just sitting ducks they're sitting ducks to some of the dumbest ideas you know, you'd ever hear, you know, I, I get emails, maybe not every week, but every two weeks, you know, people are struggling with their faith because of something they saw in the History Channel or Ancient Aliens or, you know, this Newsweek magazine. Of course, now it's Easter, so they got to truck out all these things on the impulse shelf. It's just a bunch of garbage. You know, it's every year they do it. So, you know, people are struggling with their faith. And I, and I don't, I mean, I never say this, at least in email, but it's like, this is the dumbest reason to leave the faith, the faith that I've ever heard. I mean, if you want a good one, I, I can, like, I can do better. <laughs> like, they're, they're, people are really in pain and they, they, they're in conflict over the evil in the world. I mean, I get that. You know, I, I, don't, I wouldn't say those are good reasons to leave the faith either. But, but they're understandable because they're, they do represent a, a real genuine struggle. This cartoon stuff over in the ancient aliens, you've got to be kidding me. But, but they're not kidding me. And this is this is why I've been in the fringe community for almost 20 years. It's just it's just the same old recycled nonsense. But but we don't. It's very sad that we don't equip Christians in our own churches to be able to think better about primary sources. Just asking intelligent questions, critical thinking. Bible's part of that mix. To be able to to hear something claimed on the History Channel. And just, you know, flick it away for what it is. It, it, it's like the, the dumbest stuff troubles people completely unnecessarily. And, and that's really what, what irrit I think you can tell it irritates me. But, you know, if there's anything that, that, that floats my boat, you know, I, I want people to read Scripture in its own contexts, you know, its own worldview, cognitive environment, its own literary conventions. The, the biblical writers are very intelligent in, in what they do. You know, how they write. I mean, God picked all these people from a specific time and place and environment and culture. He knew what he was getting, you know, and, and what he wants them to do, they're perfectly capable of doing. They do a great job of it, but it's produced on their own terms and their, in their own context. And a lot of that disconnects with us because we're just not them. And if we don't, if we don't learn to read scripture better, then we are vulnerable to stupid stuff. We are vulnerable to misinterpretation. We are vulnerable to poor translation. We're, you know, I, for the life of me, I don't understand. Well, I, I, I do say this in public, so I'll say it here. I, I view my ministry, if I can call it a ministry, not as trying to convince Christians to be interested in their Bible. I'm going to let somebody else do that. And, it, and it's a pathetic shame that there are people who have to do that to get a Christian interested in something that they call God's word. I view my ministry as aimed at people who already are interested and they sense that they're missing something. They want to know. They don't have to be convinced that, you know, to want to know. They already want to know. Okay, that's the sweet spot. And, and again, there's nothing secret or mysterious about it. I don't do magic. It's just you have to get the Israelite in your head. You've got to get the first century Jew in your head and commit yourself to reading in context, and the scriptures will open up. 
to you in amazing ways, but you have to be able to process it and just take it for what it is. Yeah, what a what a great thing. And I love your comments there about it. what a shame it is that we have to convince people that, to read their yeah. Bible. Um, but I, I'm grateful for the people that are engaged in that work. And I'm really yeah. grateful for your voice and the space that you're in because what I really appreciate is you're willing to talk about the weirdness of the Bible, but you're not going down these crazy rabbit trails. And I think for many people, <laughs> they, they take an inch on this and then they, you know, they go a mile and it's ancient aliens and they're having those troubles. But if you have time for one closing question, sure. and if not, let me know. Um, no, but no. I would, awesome. Um, I would love to know. So for some people, they're in danger of that. They, they take this inch and they go a mile. But I think for a lot of other people, they're they're able to see these things and be interested on them in like a literary or sociological, anthropological, history of religions level. It's like, okay, this is interesting. This is what these people thought. But they struggle to really make sense of these things in our post-enlightenment context, to have any meaningful categories for angels and demons and what that's supposed to mean for their life. So to what ex- so how should we take these things seriously? And to what extent do we need to appropriate these things into our modern lives? In other words, do we need to become ancient Israelites and act like the Enlightenment didn't happen? What What right. are we to do next in light of all that you've uh, kind of talked about? It's, it, it's actually a yes and a no. Um, and what I mean by that is if people want to go up and get, get this probably in a more comprehensible way, uh, at least I hope, if they go to my website, drmsh.com and hit the FAQ, it's, this is the last question in the FAQ. Uh, so I'm going to tap in, you know, into that here in my head. There are, I, I think the the no part is no. We don't we don't need to be thinking like like Israelites when their observations about the natural world, okay, are completely unscientific. All right. There's a difference between propositions, truth propositions that we are told by scripture to believe and the means by which those propositions are communicated or articulated. You know, going back to the, to the blood and the seam and the life force thing, again, that's, a, that's, a, that's a non-scientific or a pre-scientific worldview. But it's serviceable to communicate certain truth propositions. And you say, well, isn't that cheating, Mike? No, it's not, because in the, in the creation mandate, we're told that the reason God even put humans here was to be his imagers. And their task was to subdue the earth. Okay. They didn't need to do that in Eden. The description is actually different, but they need to, to bring the rest of the world in conformity with the, you know, the, the perfection or near perfection of, of Eden. And so the, the idea was that you're to, to accomplish the commands of Genesis 1:28 to be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, you know, go out there and do this or that. To, to, to civilize it, you're going to need help. So have kids. Okay? And, and to be able to do this, you're going to have to come to understand the natural world as it's created. The science is a theologically virtuous thing. Okay, by definition, God wanted humans. He shares his, his attributes with them. Creativity, intelligence, you know, problem solving, all these things so that they're equipped for the task of being him on, on the planet, of imaging him. And it means that, that their knowledge is going to progress and develop. They're going to they're gonna find out what makes the world tick, and that's a good thing. It's what God wants. 
to accomplish you know, the ends to which he's, he's put us here. And so God already knows this. He already knows that as, as human life progresses and goes on, the way humans look at life and everything, the natural world, is going to be variable and changeable. It's going to develop. And so he's not going to tie truth propositions to that stuff because that stuff constantly changes. I mean, God is a little more intelligent than that. Let's give him some credit for it. So when it comes to the natural world, things that we can test with the tools of science and our five senses, which are wrapped up in the tools of science and all this stuff, that stuff we would expect to leave the Israelite behind, just out of the gate by definition. And God expects it as well. Now, here's where it breaks down. That, that's the no part. We don't need to follow them. Here's the yes part. When it comes to what Scripture tells us about the supernatural world, by definition, those things cannot be tested with the tools of science. They cannot be evaluated using our five senses, which, again, are tied to the tools of science. We don't, we don't have any means by which to judge those things with the tools given us, because we're not of that world. That is other than we are. And so we have no basis other than to test the truth propositions given to us, you know, revelation, okay, in, in these areas. So we can't test these things with the tools of science. The only thing we can do is test them for their coherence. So this is where humility comes in. At the end of the day, all of these things and all the things Scripture says about the supernatural world extend from one proposition, and that is there is a God. Okay, If there's a God, and, and that God is, you know, we're talking about the Bible here, and that God is, is what the Bible says he is, well then, he doesn't act randomly. He ha Things that he does, he does with a purpose, he's intelligent, I mean, all these basic attributes. So on what basis would we deny that God could create other spiritual beings? Can't evaluate that with the tools of science. Would it make sense given you know, his, you know, his authority, his power? And so, sure. Well, and, and if he made them, could he give them creative ability like we have? Why, why couldn't he? It, again, these, these are truth propositions that can be probed philosophically. What makes sense? All of these things, the whole panoply of the heavenly host and their jobs and who they are and what they, where they rank and all these things that Scripture tells us about it, they, they all make sense if there is a God like the God of the Bible because they're all derivative from that one proposition. See, and, I, and I realize that, that that doesn't comfort some people because, again, it requires some humility. You know, when people ask me, well, how does this work? How does that work? I don't know. I'm not a deity. How would I know? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, that's the honest answer. But but here's the flip side of that honest coin. You know, can I ask you the same question, Christian, about the virgin birth, about the Trinity, about the deity of Christ? Is the Holy Spirit really a person? I mean, all, all these things that, that we accept theologically without getting into the weird stuff. Guess what? They're only testable by the same means as the other stuff, and they come from the same source. So on what basis, Christian, are you going to say, well, I accept as intellectually okay this you know, category A theological stuff, but category B freaks me out, and I'm not buying that. If they both come from the same source, 
and they're both only testable in the same way, you got a problem. Okay, you have a coherence problem. You are selectively supernatural. And, and the honest answer, I'll answer my own question too, is you don't have a basis for making that call. All you've got is, I like this pile and I don't like that one. This pile makes me feel, you know, really, if you think this pile makes you feel okay, you know what? The, re the, the brutal reality is that nothing that you hold dear in your Christian faith, the concept of salvation, that can't be tested with science, okay? Nothing you hold dear conforms to an enlightenment worldview that excludes God. Nothing. That is the brutal truth. So it is very inconsistent for you to embrace this pile and not that pile. Because the very things that you think undermine this pile can be used to undermine that one. All it takes is an intelligent, enterprising atheist to realize this. And there, you know, there are some of those out there. <laughs> okay. You know, it, but all they're capable of is, is, is arguing you back to the single proposition, was there a God or not? And that proposition's done quite well. Okay, that's done quite well for millennia. It does quite well today. Thousands, maybe tens of thousands of, of PhDs and hard sciences taught at the same universities, published in the same journals. They had the same advisors. You know, they, they, they write and, and use the same textbooks as, as the atheist. You know, it's not a question of intellect. Okay, it, it just isn't. It's not this one's smart and this one's dumb. It's just that there are tens of thousands of people, Mr. Atheist, that know all your arguments and know them well because they, have, they went to the same places and had the same professors, okay? They know all the arguments just as well as you do. And you know what? They don't find them persuasive at all. Why is that? You got two choices. Either somehow you, single person you, are smarter than everyone else in the conversation, or B, those Christians are just lying. They really aren't believers. They're just lying. They, they, they're just lying to themselves. Really? Where's the empirical research for that? Show me the data. It's a nice way of saying you got nothing, because there is no data like that. There are no data. You know, it... It's, it's really a coherence test on the supernatural, the spiritual world side. You, you test these things philosophically, you know, with, with logic, you know, the, the tools of, of sound thinking. But on the other side, we can test things with the tools of science. So we're, we don't need to follow the Israelite and the first century Jew in the areas where God expects us to develop and grow. It would be abnormal if we didn't, both in his eyes and our own. But where we are dependent on the knowledge God gives us through revelation, we can't do that. We have to accept it. And the only thing that we can do is probe it for its coherence. So it's a yes and a no, whether we accept it or not, whether, whether we're the Israelite or not. Sometimes we are, sometimes we're not. It just depends which category these things fall into. That's really helpful. And I hope people find that as helpful as I did. And thank you so much for your time today. I think there's going to be a lot for people to go back and listen through and really do some interesting and at times hard questions. I think especially with that last one you bring up, kind of the point that many of us might be kind of functionally like these deists, like we say we believe in God, yeah. but we have no space for and the supernatural. You know, I don't want people to stay there, but, but I, 
it's a it's an understandable intellectual struggle. I mean, I, I had to go through it myself, you know. But at, at the end of the day, like, am I going to presume that there are things that only God can tell me, <laughs> as opposed to things that I'm just smart enough to, to learn <laughs> through some other means, you know? So again, there's there's just this humility factor that that's really hard for people who grow up in a in a in a technological society. You know, we just tend to reflexively think that we have the answers for everything, and the reality is, no, we actually don't. <laughs> you know, and sometimes we're just on a path, and other times, like we we got no idea. You know, this is it's it's a guess, and to to sort of get to that point, I think is just mentally healthy, <laughs> you know, to, to sort of surrender your omni- your own omniscience. That's really what it comes down to. Come to grips with the fact that you're not omniscient. Your culture isn't omniscient and nobody in the culture is omniscient either. And, and this is how we have to approach these things and do the best we can. But faith does not operate like it's an antagonist to reason. Again, just if you're testing faith claims, supernatural worldview stuff, with the tools of logic and, and good thinking, that's not irrational. That's the rational thing to do. But again, at the end of the day, you, it, it's going to it's going to bring you to the point where you realize that I can't. There's there's a barrier here. I have to surrender my own either what I thought was my own omniscience or my hunger to be omniscient. I'm never going to get there. Yeah, let it go. And, and, and you got to realize that, you know, life operates this way. Even in science, you know, science can only take you so far. And then, and then we, have, we have pioneers that are brave enough to guess or just to wing it. <laughs> you know? They go on faith. You know? <laughs> and it works, but they don't necessarily know why. But there it is. You know? and, and, and that life is just like that in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I love that surrendering your omniscience. I think that's a beautiful way of putting it. And once again, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a fantastic discussion. I have thoroughly enjoyed it. And I'm sure there's people out there that have enjoyed it and are thinking, man, I want to learn more about this guy. So could you close us by just letting us know where people can find uh, more of your work? Sure. The, the Nerve Center is drmsh.com. It's DR as in doctor and then my initials. Um, you can find basically anything I'm into on that website, whether it's academic stuff, you know, fringe, you know, community stuff. Like, you know, the podcast you already mentioned, nakedbiblepodcast.com. Um, I have a three, two, one that's sort of aimed at, again, the you know, pop culture, fringy kind of you know, topics. But the goal is, is still the same. Let's think better about primary sources and try to think, you know, just better in general about you know, some question. So I, I you know, the, the the pop culture fringy side is is largely you know funneled in that direction. But drmsh.com will pretty much get you to anywhere you need to go. And then all the books are available on Amazon, so that's easy. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. And thank you to everyone watching this. Whenever it is that you watch this, I do not take your time lightly and really appreciate that. Until next time, be on the lookout for more videos. And as always, go out and love God and love others because truly above all else, that will change the world.